You are listening to the Indie Game Development Podcast Show, sponsored by CurioSoft Kids Games and the letter E. Visit the Indie Game Development Podcast site at www.indiegamepod.com. Thanks again for listening to the podcast show. We have a couple new features that we've added to the site. We now have our own social network, and we also have a wiki. This is a place for you to list your games, your game sites, and even your blogs. So it's a good way to promote yourself. You'll find links to both of these new features on the right side of the IndieGamePod.com website page. Now on to the podcast. Hi, welcome to the Indie Game Development Podcast Show. Uh, How about you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Jonathan Blow. I've been an independent game developer for a while now, uh, about 11 years. Um, I've spoken at various conferences on and off. I used to write the uh, technical column for Game Developer Magazine. And more recently at the Game Developers Conference, I've run an event called the Experimental Gameplay Sessions every year for six years, which is about uh, showcasing the newest and most uh, wacky and experimental things that are happening in the world of independent games. And uh, my current game development projects are uh, Braid, which won an award for innovation in game design at the 2006 IGF, and a new game which is not really announced yet, which I imagine we might talk a little bit about later. How did you get into games? Well, it's one of those things where the, the first time I saw a computer that I could use, you know, I was pretty young, maybe 10 years old or 11 years old, and... Um, I just wanted to make games on it, you know, and they were very simple things to begin with, you know, just text and changing colors of text and telling you things as you pressed keys, but over the years I was just an earnest hobbyist and things got more and more involved and sophisticated. When you developed these games initially, were they done alone or did you do them in a small team with other kids or how did that work? Well, um, you know, it was a sixth grade class originally, so there were class assignments. Um, It was basically a classroom full of Commodore VIC-20s, and, you know, there would be things that we were supposed to work on that day, but you get done with it early, and then you go off and sort of do your own thing. Um, I would have friends who I talked to at that age about what we wanted to do, but um, really most of what I ended up doing was my own thing, just because... It's at, at that young of an age, it's hard to be on the same page as other people about you know building something coherently as a team. So as a sixth grader, you started going indie. Uh, what inspired you to keep? What inspired you to keep going indie? Man, you know, I don't know. It's like I never thought about it that way. Um, <laughs> it's just that all the um, all the things I ever wanted to do were sort of guided by my own inner vision, right? I guess. Um, you know, at some point when I was pretty young, I probably thought it would be cool to work for a big game company, but that was really before I had a coherent understanding of what big companies were like and what day-to-day life was in them. And, you know, as I got older, like in college and graduated from college, I really quickly realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So um, in 1996, uh, when I started my first company with a friend, it was just because that's just what I felt like. I felt like, you know, or we felt like doing our own thing. and not getting a job. When you started this company, what was the initial motivation? What was the goal in terms of the games that you were going to develop for this? We didn't have a very um, sophisticated uh, vision of what we wanted to do. Um, Basically, I had been working for a few various jobs and as a consultant, and my friend had gone to grad school on the East Coast and wanted to move back out to the West Coast. And we just, we knew that we were really good programmers uh, because I was uh, primarily a tech person back then and not design, which is what I mainly do now. And um, we just knew that if we sat down and did something, it would be really cool, just with that faith that young people always have. And um, that was actually kind of true, but it was also, as you can imagine, a lot harder than we thought um, to make the first game that we made. Um, but it was a rewarding experience, definitely. What were some of the surprising scenarios or situations that you encountered that that made it um, what you considered a hard experience, a rewarding experience, but also a challenging experience? Um, mainly just that it takes a long time to get things done. When you're programming things from the ground up, and, um, and you also have the responsibility of the game being fun, right? It's not like some designer in a big company comes 
to you with this to-do list and then you type in the to-do list and you're done, right? Um, it's more like you think of some stuff to do that might make the game better and you go and you do it and maybe you'd plan for it to take two months and it takes five and then after the end of that five months you're like, you know, that really isn't as good as I hoped it would come out. You know, we need to spend some more time on this. And um, I'm sure that sounds familiar to many indie developers. That's just kind of how it goes. And we didn't expect that going in, but, um, you know, we, we, we quickly adapted to the reality of that, I would say. When you finished your game, did you try to find a publisher or were you thinking about publishing on the internet? This was actually, um, so 1996 was a very interesting time. It was the early days of, um, of business trying to commercialize on internet games. Like internet gaming has been around for much longer than that. But, uh, you know, around that time there were a lot of people who had modems like 28K, 56K, and um, some people had broadband even, you know, this amazing thing that lets you send messages really fast. And um, there were a couple of companies that were trying to uh, sell you a subscription, you know, for like $15, $20 a month to have high quality uh, dial-up to try and play. So we signed with one of those uh, called TEN, which stood for Total Entertainment Network. Their business model eventually didn't work out. Um, they eventually became Pogo, which was a casual game thing, and then Pogo was bought by Electronic Arts. But um, we actually signed with TEN very early on um, way before our game was done. We thought the game was almost done. Like, we went in there with this cool, it was this multiplayer uh, sci-fi hover tank war game, and, you know, we showed it to them about eight or nine months after we started, which was really fast. Um, especially considering in those days, you didn't really have uh, game engines that you could use or libraries. It was like, you know, we wrote everything from the ground up, the 3D engine, the texture mapping was in software, so you write the code to draw every pixel on the screen and all that. And, um, you know, we were like, ah, oh, awesome, we totally signed this big deal, which w what seemed big at the time, you know, when you're 24, and um, we were just totally hyped. And then, you know, it took us an extra year and a half to try and finish the game that we had signed on that initial deal. So that's sort of what I was talking about, about it being hard and the development process being shaped a little bit differently. Um, these days when I'm doing games, um, you know, I'm self-funding them entirely myself and then uh, going to people when they're done, um, which is a different, very different from, from how it worked in those old days, um, but what I think is the preferable way to do it. After a year and a half you finish it up, um, what did you do next? Well, um, so we had signed what seemed like a pretty big deal, like I said, but when you have to pay a few people for like a year and a half, you know, you, you guys all got to eat and at least do some things for fun once in a while and buy some computers to develop on. It doesn't matter how big that number sounded, it really, uh, it really runs out pretty fast. And so we found ourselves in a situation that um, we, uh, we wanted to pretty much turn around a sequel to the game and um, like we said, that company 10 that we were working with was pretty much having business problems and it was pretty evident that they weren't going to be around. So we actually did a sequel uh, with um, a company called Interactive Magic, which had been in the online space for a long time. Uh, and then they had business problems and became the I Entertainment Network and then they went out of business. Um, so it was a very interesting time uh, for internet games, but actually basically none of the companies in that space actually uh, succeeded at what they were doing. For indie game developers that are thinking of starting up a game development company, say with a friend or someone else, or even hiring a friend for their game development projects, do you have any suggestions or insights based on that experience? You know, my suggestion is really um, not to do it that way if you can help it and to take a more incremental approach. Like the, the nice thing about the internet now, which was not true back when I started this first company, um, is that you can really um, make money off small things. You know, you could put a free game and that, that only took you a little bit of time to make, like a couple of weeks, and have some Google ads there or something, right? You can, um, you know, you can make a game that took four months to make and sell it for five dollars or something. And, and none of that was really an option 
back then, we pretty much had to make a bigger game that would kind of, or so we thought, we had to make a bigger game that would kind of knock your socks off and uh, that that would get a lot of uh, hype. So my recommendation would be actually to build revenue really slowly. Um, you know, do some small things, make small amounts of money, find out what works and what doesn't, and as um, as that becomes successful, if you've got some money coming in, then maybe you can quit whatever job you're already doing and feel more secure about that, right? Um, the problem that we always had was um, it's just it's hard to be relaxed and have a good quality of life when you don't know exactly when you're going to make the next milestone and have money coming in, you know? And it's just that's not a situation that I really would recommend to anybody. Because, you know, when you start your first big game like that, um, you don't necessarily have very much experience uh, being critical of your own work and anything that you think about, you know, you're really attached to it. It's And it's this great game. It's like, oh, it's the greatest game that I've ever thought of and I really want to do it. Well, why is that? Well, just because it's the thing that you're the most excited about right then. But after you have a few years of perspective on working at that, you can look back and say, well, why didn't we make a zillion dollars off that game, right? Why didn't everybody in the world want to download and play this game and jump up and down and say it was the greatest thing ever? And once, once you start asking yourself questions like that, and whether that's even really what you care about, having the biggest audience or, or external validation like that, um, then at least for me, that was a, a very useful way to get some clarity on what kinds of games I should be designing in the future. During this time, were you keeping track of the online game scene too? Oh yeah, because that was my first interest. And um, I was following what was going on. And most of the games at that point that I thought of that I would like to do as soon as I was done uh, consulting were still online game ideas at that point, which is not true now. I don't have very many ideas for online games now. Was the paradigm in your mind still something that had to be that had to be multiplayer and maybe even emulate AAA like quality and production values and stuff like that? Or well, go ahead. Oh yeah, sure. Um, definitely, uh, it had to have certain aspects that I had seen in other games, but I don't think that even at that point AAA was still as high of a priority like it sort of was because when we started the company it's kind of seemed feasible like yeah if we're really good programmers and we do an awesome job we can totally compete with the big companies on AAA production values and as each year passed that became less and less true right whereas you know nowadays it really really isn't true um, but but you know even into like 2000 2001 it was still kind of true and um, so I wanted to do that just um, just to kind of prove to myself that I didn't suck, you know? Like, yeah, I can really, I can still belt out some good systems that look really nice and work really well. But um, I was kind of reaching a little bit of maturity from a design standpoint and seeing that maybe that's not actually that important. Like one of the games on, on uh, 10, when we came out, um, you know, we, we had all these beta tests and stuff and had people show up and play the game for free and comment on it. And we got a bunch of players, but it was kind of hard uh, to get as many players as we wanted because the download was big. It was like 20 or 30 megabytes, which was huge, you know, in like 1997, 1998. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a sort of, it was kind of a semi kind of space combat game. So like we used every key on the keyboard and like shift and wow. control keys and like all that stuff. Yeah. Um, Interface simplicity was not one of my design goals back then, and it is now, possibly as a reaction to that. But so, you know, we had a bunch of players who thought it was cool, but not the huge, like, groundswell of people that I really wanted. And th But there was this other game on 10 called Arc, which was a really, really simple, like, very low tech, absolute, like, 2D scrolling background, <laughs> and you pilot this little UFO around, and you click the mouse to, like, shoot little bullets at other guys piloting their UFO. And then, then it had, like, a capture the flag game mode or something. Um, and that had more players than us by like two or three times. And I was really bitter about that at the time. Like, what the hell? You know, I could have written this game in much less time, like certainly much less than a year, possibly a few months. Whereas what are we spending two or three years for on this game that not so many people want to play? And it's just, well, that game, it was a lot easier to understand. Uh, it was a lot easier to download and get into. And um, it gave people a lot of what they're looking for without having to have a huge learning curve, right? And 
um, that was something that was I think that has creeped more into the mainstream design aesthetic now like games are simpler now but back then it really wasn't that obvious that that was a good idea at least not to me um, when you saw that game did you decide to quickly borrow some of the ideas or did you consider it an anomaly because this other well, game which is much simpler and just didn't make sense compared to what you know the traditional gamer was used to or was actually embracing at that time well I think you you rationalize it somehow right because you're <laughs> invested in your own thing that you've been doing Absolutely. for a couple of years so th there was no way that I was going to like throw out all the 3D graphics that I'd spent years on and all the huge game design but um, you know I think I sort of looked at it and acknowledged it and just the way that I approached that was going to be to make our own game as better as I could you know in its own way right because you don't yeah yeah I don't know so you were keeping track of the indie game scene during these design gigs and did you come across Snood or some of these other simpler games that kind of took the um, took off where that other game that you mentioned, Ark, I think, yeah, left off. I mean, well, it, that, that's an interesting thing. Okay. Well, I don't know if there's a consistent trend, but Snood definitely is one of those mysteries, right? It's like <laughs> really crappy graphics, like horrible, um, not very good feet, like all the. And in fact, I think Snood is still a mystery, right? Because despite the fact that it's simple, right? That that simplicity really, I think, was part of its appeal, but. Every other element of it is something that just, even today, you know, modern design wisdom would say is horrible. Like, there's not very good feedback between the controls and, like, what you're doing. Um, it just feels really amateur end-to-end. -end. And that game was huge, right? And Absolutely. why was it huge? Nobody, I, I don't think anybody knows. Like, I think in hindsight you can make up lots of reasons um, that can convince you, but I think... There's just a mystery out there. Like some games really hit people in the right way, and that was one of them. And nobody knows why. Like RuneScape is another one, man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like RuneScape does not have high production values, right? It's not. <laughs> it's not even that easy to get into and play or whatever. But it completely like destroyed every other you know game in that area. So I, you know, I don't know, man. So. So you finished these design gigs, and yeah, they they were actually mostly programming, not design. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So you finished these programming gigs during this time. Are you also enhancing your design understanding or your game understanding in general? Yeah. Um, I guess we're we're into a period around two thousand one to oh three, maybe, and um, I had started uh, the experimental gameplay workshop in two thousand two to respond to. Uh, what I felt was a big lack at the time, uh, which is that every once in a while you would hear about someone who was doing a game just to be different, right? Like just to explore something wacky that nobody else had done, but that wasn't really acknowledged as a thing that indie developers regularly would do, right? Whereas if you go to film, like an indie filmmaker is probably someone with wacky cinematography and, and who has certain directorial approaches that they want to take that wouldn't be accepted by mainstream film, right? Whereas indie games, yeah. there's still a big branch of indie games at this time which is not like that, right? Yeah. Um, but especially back then, indie games were still kind of like, they're just games with a low budget, right? <laughs> they didn't necessarily have that much more of an agenda to them. Um, and, uh, you know, so the Experimental Gameplay Workshop was one thing uh, that I did to try and help uh, bring that idea to the forefront that like hey experimenting with game design is like a thing that you can do and there are like people who do it and who want to share with you how it went um, and so you know I, I had my own experimental game designs that I was thinking about at that time but also seeing a bunch of other people's through doing this yearly event and that really um, again it's that that value of having all this perspective of all these different uh, all these different things, I think, was really good. When you started this workshop, was that the first time you attended GDC, or were you also attending GDC when you first started your game company? No, I attended it uh, 1996, about a month into development of our first game, actually. So was there a transition in terms of mentality at the GDC, say, in 96, compared to you know, 2002, 2003? Um. I'm sure there were. I, I I think you have to narrow that down in order for it to be a 
an a-, a question oh, that can um, have a more intelligent answer to. Good it. point. So in terms of what was considered leading edge or bleeding edge or where things are going, what was the the notion in nineteen ninety six compared to say two thousand and two or two thousand and three? Well, you know, there are big waves of this that happen every couple of years, right? Um, Absolutely. Internet games, like I was talking about, like companies like Ten and M Player were a big wave, 96, 97. Uh, there was sort of this second wave, maybe, in the later 90s about Hollywood and games. Like, there's starting to be another one now, right? But back yeah. then, it was another, like, oh, we've got all this, we finally got computers fast enough to play, like, full motion video, and, you know, they all have... CD players and stuff, and wow, Hollywood directors are really interested in this. Um, I don't know. There's been a bunch, you know, and the thing about all of them is that they all have a little bit of truth to them, but they're mostly wrong. Like right so, now, well, there's ahead. one. There's one that's dying off right now, which is about um, you know mobile games, right? That's been oh, a yeah. big thing for like a few years. Everybody's been saying, "Oh my God, mobile games are going to be the most giant thing ever, and they're going to change the whole world." And it's really not turning out to be true, right? I mean, there's a market there. It's a significant market. But it's not like, oh, my God, this is something that we've never seen before or we all, there's a giant gold rush or anything. It's like, hey, there were a couple companies that became successful catering to that market. And aside from that, the game business is kind of continuing on its own course. And I think that's, that's pretty much the way it always is. Like, it's very rarely is there something that really a trend that everybody sees in advance that really upends the way things are being done. What would you say is the current wave? Mm, you, mentioned, you, know, you, you mentioned mobile games ending you know, pretty much now. Is there another wave coming? Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, I, think, I was going to mention MMOs, so I wasn't sure if... Which yeah, I, well, I think MMOs were kind of going on simultaneously with the mobile game wave, and I kind of ignored the MMO thing because... Um, for a lot of different reasons, partially because I just feel like it's such a dead design space. Like everybody is copying EverQuest and <laughs> Ultima Online. Like what? And there's so much money being put up to develop these games that people aren't really going to experiment in any kind of different way. There are some indie MMOs, you know, like A Tale in the Desert and all that stuff. That yeah. or Puzzle Pirates, which are very different, and those are cool. And I'm I'm very happy to to um, follow what's going on with those games and play them. But um, as for the mainstream ones, I just have sort of like a more morbid interest of, of watching this thing go on. Um, but yeah, um, MMOs are still a big wave, and I don't think that's ended. Um, I know of several companies right now who, um, who have a lot of funding to do sort of the next gen of MMOs that are kind of trying to break away and be different uh, from the current ones, and we'll see how that goes. But again, I don't necessarily have faith that it's going to be this giant world-changing thing. During these programming gigs, you mentioned that you were going to do, you had some other game design ideas, and that was one of the inspirations for having this experimental gameplay workshop. Um, were you prototyping these game design ideas? Um, sort of. Eventually, over the years, I uh, eventually ended up uh, with something that was very much a prototyping kind of mindset that's deliberate, like I'm going to do a prototype of this and not the real game, and it's going to take a week or two weeks. Uh, but, um, you know, a little earlier than that, it was more like, hey, I'm just kind of fiddling around on this game, and I'm seeing where it goes. Um, there were several projects like that, and um, they, uh, they reached various stages of completion. Um, none of them completely complete. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of value in the uh, in the idea that you're prototyping something specifically, and that you may not actually do the real project. You're just going to do the prototype because it lets you focus. Um, at, at a GDC talk that I gave uh, at the Independent Games Summit this year, I actually talked about some of the projects that I did that I think um, were not as productive as they could have been in terms of you know showing me things and what works and what doesn't, simply because I didn't approach them. Uh, with that mindset that I was just doing this to understand what was going on. I was more approaching them with, I'm going to attack this game and get a bunch done, and oh, I did a bunch of work on this area over here, but it doesn't matter because this area isn't fun, and so now I don't know what to do. Well, I'll work on a prototype for one or two weeks, and then maybe put it away for as long as it takes for that idea to sort of mature in my subconscious and come back as something that I really want to work on. Um, so of those prototypes that are on my webpage, two of them... 
And you what, know, I what's your website again? I'll, uh, I, it's uh, numbernone.com, N-U-M-B-E-R-N-O-N-E dot C-O-M. And uh, you'll go there, and there'll be a link to my homepage. And pr there's a bunch of links on there, but look for the thing that says game prototypes. Um, right, so two of those um, haven't yet turned into something that I want to work on yet. But one of them, after sort of kicking around in the back of my head for over a year, um, I had um, what felt to me like the right idea about where to pursue it and where to take it. And that's actually going to be my next game after Braid. When you work on these things for one or two weeks and then put them away... Do you consciously focus on doing other prototypes, or do you just go about reading up on other information, or is there any kind of like incubation process that you that you take on so that when you reapproach it or reattack the prototype, it's you've got a different slant on it? Um, well, I think the incubation process is just naturally time. You know, as time passes and you see other things, like maybe you're browsing the internet and you see things that other people have done and that inspires you in some way or just sometimes you slept on something for enough nights in a row and then it comes back in a different way um, in terms of what I specifically would do during that time um, these prototypes that I'm talking about now uh, one was done actually before Braid and then the other two were done about a year ago sort of in a soft spot during development when I wanted a little one or two month break from working on Braid so you know I had something to go back to and, and do as soon as I was done with the prototypes, right? Oh, now I'm working on uh, upgrading the graphics in Braid, and there's this IGF deadline coming in and, and all that stuff. So um, that's actually something that I highly recommend to people is when you prototype, um, don't do it when you need the prototype to be successful and then become the game that you're going to develop for the next year or two, because that doesn't really give you a plan B for like, well, what if this prototype doesn't work out and it's not really something I want to pursue? And you're just kind of hung out to dry, right? Um, I totally recommend prototyping just while you're on some other project when you want to break. And it doesn't matter that much how it comes out. And you're just going to do whatever you feel like doing and just be free to experiment and just let it go. And then um, maybe that'll turn into something great and maybe it won't. And, and that is... I think the most successful way to do prototypes, which interestingly is not the way that big companies do it, right? Like they'll have a prototype phase before their pre-production phase, before their production phase, and it's part of like this big linear thing uh, in the development of their game. And I don't think that that's the best way to prototype. Um, another thing some people have mentioned is that while they're doing their main game development, just to take a break, say for a couple of weeks, they'll pick up a prototype. Um, is that have you done something like that? You mean pick up as in my own or someone else's? Oh, or? not pick up someone. Yeah, pick up as in your own. So, for example, to take a break from your main game development for, say, a week or two, you will pick up, say, an old prototype or even a new prototype idea and start doing that. Absolutely. That's what I did with Braid, and um, it, it worked very well. Because when, whenever you're working on a big project like that, no matter how... Like, Braid is the best game that I've ever worked on. It's the best idea that I ever had. And the actual game turned out better than the idea. And as I built levels, I was really just hyped and like, wow, this is great. This level's awesome, you know. But even so, it just takes a lot of time and effort and emotional investment to make a game like that, right? And if it takes two years, you know, maybe you really need a break in the middle of those two years. And so I think that's a good way to do it. It's like having a little tiny vacation, you know, without actually going on vacation. Let's focus on Braid. What inspired Braid and how did, you know, let's talk about the design process and how you even came about with the idea. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Braid is that the original idea I thought was kind of cool, but it's nowhere near as cool as the actual game turned out, right? So um, there was kind of an organic process from going from that initial idea into the final idea, right? So the initial idea was... Um, I just wanted to make a game that was about um, playing with the idea of time in different ways. So I mentioned uh, one of the prototypes on my website is this thing called Oracle Billiards, which is about playing pool and, and what happens if you could see the future, right? And um, that was a pretty interesting prototype, but it also had some flaws. Excuse me a second. Sure. <clears throat> it also had some flaws in terms of 
not being as playable or as fun as I would like it to, but it, it gave me a really interesting feeling. Like, wow, here's, in this game framework, I've managed to give the player a little bit of the feeling of doing something that's impossible in the real world, right? Of actually being able to see the future and what's going to happen and to sort of um, explore what that means. And that was a really interesting thing to me. Like, how can we make games that are a lot like the real world, but where you tweak one or two things to sort of give the player some kind of extra powers of perception or, you know, superpowers, not superpowers in the jump tall buildings kind of way, but like subtle things like a, about the nature of reality that maybe you can take that back into the real world and have some kind of expanded understanding. So that's what I wanted to do with Braid and I just had the idea that uh, it was going to be in a platform world because platformers are pretty simple um, and it would be easy to just have this thing where, hey, the guy runs and he jumps and he bounces off monsters' heads and maybe there's some keys and stuff, and that's a very simple world, and then you can play around with the rules of that world and do all this wacky time stuff, and the game will actually be about the time parts of the rules and not about having a bunch of different, you know, complicated monsters that you fight and and things like that. Um, now, so that, that's been the original idea, and that still describes the game now, but the, the things that were not as good as where it went was what the ideas were for each world, so... Um, one idea that I had was like, oh, if you read about quantum mechanics, um, it's this really interesting thing where in quantum mechanics, uh, just like in Newtonian physics, there's no arrow of time in the equations. So, um, you know, if you run the rules of physics forward, they're the same as if you run them backward. And so why does time seem to us to only go in one direction? That was a really interesting question that I wanted to approach in the game design. Um, but the way that I wanted to pursue that was in retrospect really lame. Um, it was just like, hey, let's let's go through this level and I'm running and jumping and when I get to the end I have to go backward and follow the same trail that I did and so um, I need to figure out what is a reversible way to navigate through the world, which I think, I think that would have been a little bit interesting, but um, not as good as where the game went, which was um, one of the first things that I implemented in the game was a rewind mechanism, somewhat like is in games like Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, or, or Blinks the Time Sweeper, but um, as a response to some, an email discussion that I had with some friends, um, I made that ability to rewind unlimited. So it wasn't a resource, you didn't have to earn power-ups or anything, you can just rewind anytime you want. And so part of this discussion that we had was, well, if people could do that, wouldn't it kill all sense of consequence, you know, if you're not worried about getting killed by something because you can just unkill yourself as many times as you want, how do you set up goals that the player is worried about achieving and can feel substantial success when he achieves? And that was an interesting question to me. And so the game became about that. Luckily, the rewind was the first thing that I implemented, and it, was, it worked really well. Um, and then all of a sudden, I saw how I could plug in those other ways that time could behave that I'd been thinking about, but plug them just into the rewind. So from world to world, the rewind is sort of your tool, and then the way that affects the world changes. And that was really interesting and worked really well. When you came up with this design decision, was it all within a one or two week span, or was it something where you were just constantly experimenting with it or picking up things, you know, maybe leaving it for a month? and then picking it up again, or how did that all work? I had been thinking about it on and off for maybe a couple of months uh, while doing a previous project, but I hadn't, um, hadn't really done any work on it. And that was still while it was the vague idea and I didn't really know what the rules of time were gonna be. Um, but then one day, uh, or actually um, one month, I went on vacation in Thailand for a couple weeks and most people would like hang out at the beach and stuff but I was like, oh, after the first week I was like, I'm enjoying myself here in Thailand, why don't I uh, work on this game uh, that I've been thinking about because it's an ideal time to do it, I'll just work on it for a week or so and whatever I come up with in that time, you know, hey it either worked or it didn't and uh, that really appealed to me so I worked on it I guess for about eight days and um, really had, it just, it just came, like, one after the other, all the ideas just lined up, and they were awesome, and at the end of eight days, I had the first three worlds of, um, of the game, at least the programming behind them, and a few puzzles in each one. So, after 
you were programming and designing the game in Thailand. What happened next? Well, um, I was really excited because it went really well, and so I mailed it to about ten or, or mailed a download link to about ten or fifteen of my uh, friends who are game designer, programmer type of people. I just wanted to know what they thought about it, and you know, they all liked it a lot. And I was like, "Awesome! This is the game that I'm going to work on now." And uh, that was it. And then, um, well, I was actually finishing up a previous project for a couple of months. Um, but after that was done, I just decided, hey, I'm doing Braid now. And that's how it's been for a couple of years, actually. Did you submit that? Well, when your game designer friends thought it was really nice, were you thinking about submitting to IGF then? Well, um, maybe. Um, you know, I certainly um, had a long time to think about it. And I think that I was seeing it as a useful milestone. You know, this was in January that I did the Thailand stuff, and then... In April was pretty much of um, April of uh, 2005, I guess, was pretty much when I was able to actually start working on the game for real and devote a lot of time to it. And I guess the um, the initial IGF deadline is like July or something, or August. Um, I don't know when it was. Yeah, August. But but that gave me a pretty good like, you know, hey, in in four months or however long that is. Can I really get the foundation of this game nailed down enough that it can enter into this competition and, and be a contender? And it was, and that was nice. And John Carmack also sometimes will take a vacation somewhere to do some programming and stuff. Is, have, you, have you used that technique of actually traveling somewhere else to do work or to do design or programming or inspiration in other games besides Braid? Well, um... It's been interesting. Um, I've noticed that actually during or immediately after big trips like that, um, I just get really inspired, just whatever it is. You know, your mind sees a lot of new things and you get a rest from whatever your usual daily life is. And so actually when I started uh, the experimental gameplay workshop, you know, I wrote this whole little manifesto for that, which um, I, I probably has been destroyed at this point. But um, it was actually on the plane back from a trip to Africa that I'd taken. That was like two weeks long. Oh. I was like totally scrawling on the plane and digging through my, my backpack for pieces of paper and stuff. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, there have been other, um, other times when even just going away somewhere for a weekend, you know, not even a very far trip, but just like driving a couple hours and camping somewhere. Um, you know, it just it really helps, and so I actually plan to do much more of that in the future. When you submit it to IGF, what were you then just waiting on hearing from them, or what were you improving the game during that time, or what was were you working on the next game? No, I was still improving the game. It was um, it was significantly far from being done. You know, the IGF rules say, you know, it essentially, I mean, they change every year about exactly what has to be done. But I believe, you know, that year it basically said it has to at least be in open beta status or whatever. It has to be stable. Um, but it didn't have to be 100% done, like have all its levels there or anything. And that's, that's the state that Braid was in. Um, um, at, at the initial deadline, it had um, four of the worlds that would eventually, or maybe, maybe the beginning of the fifth. And then um, for the final, the final deadline in December, like the finalists, uh, it actually had everything, like every level in the game. So you know, between that time, um, I did a bunch of level design, a bunch of game design tweaks, just thinking about what those additional worlds should be, experimenting with a bunch of different ways that time could behave and throwing out a lot of them for not being fun enough or not generating puzzles that were interesting enough. And then eventually, um, you know, eventually I haven't had something that made me happy. Uh, since you run the experimental gameplay workshop, have you noticed any trends or interesting things over the past, you know, couple of or few years related to these like um, different types of games? Um, you mean in terms of specific kinds of games that happen, or just experimentalism in general? Um, both experimentalism in general and just you know specific genres of games, or if there's anything that's really gaining steam, or if there's even like a mini trend. You mentioned trends that happen at GDC. Maybe there's even a trend that happens when you give mm. these experimental well, gameplay. 
Yeah, well, I think that the biggest thing to notice, which has really become obvious in the past couple of years, is just that there is a lot more experimentation happening now than there was um, six years ago when we started. Um, that that can be seen in a few ways, right? One is just that, you know, we put out this call for participation every year, like, hey, everybody mail in the stuff that you're working on and we'll figure out what we, we what will be in the show. And um, it used to be really hard to find stuff, you know, I used to have to go digging up all sorts of obscure references about things that I'd heard people working on and call them up and all that. And now it's a lot easier. We just get tons of submissions. And, you know, part of that's because people have heard of our event and yeah. they like it. But part of it is just pe more people are doing this kind of stuff now. Um, and then the other thing is, well, the other consequence of that is that the event itself is not that unique anymore. So when the experimental gameplay session started, people would go there and be like, wow, this is totally different from other stuff at the GDC. And they would really love that. And now um, it's not as different because if you go to like the IGF pavilion, you'll see a few games that are pretty different from mainstream games, right, every year. And that's nice. Um, but it means that we have to actually work harder uh, to find wacky stuff for people. This year we actually had a couple of games um, that were about messing around with 3D space. So Portal from Valve, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. And then another game uh, called uh, Crush from Zoe Mode, uh, which is a UK company, which was previously called Kuju until they renamed themselves. And um, those, those two games made sort of an interesting pair to show off. It's like, wow, here's one way that you can play around with 3D space and put all these portals in weird places to create puzzles. But then here's this totally different way that you can play around with 3D, you know, crunching it down to 2D and then re-separating into 3D and you can kind of teleport and create weird temporary um, relations between objects. So that um, we have a lot of mini trends like that where every once in a while you'll notice a pattern in what people are doing, but um, no multi-year trends that I can be quite as cynical about just yet. What are the most interesting games or, you know, s emerging genres or trends that you've seen in the workshop? Um, well, my favorite uh, from this year was actually something that uh, has gotten a lot of mixed reviews uh, in the public, which is Rod Humble's games. Uh, he, we showed this year two games of his, which are actually available for download if you search for them. Uh, one of them is called The Marriage, and another one's called A Walk with Max. And these games were um, him doing uh, what I, for a long time, wanted more people to try and do, uh, which is express you know, feelings or like some kind of thematic thing through game design, like through the way that objects behave in the rules of the game world. You know, most of the time when a game wants to tell you a story or create a feeling, it does it in the same way that a lot of traditional media do it. You know, they'll have some characters say something, just like a movie, or you'll read some text on the screen, or there'll be some sad music to come on, right? Um, and that's fine, right? Those are all useful ways to try and... Uh, create emotional involvement with the player, but they're not unique to games, right? So if, if games are going to be special, they have to be able to create emotion in a way that other media can't really do it. They have to have their own sort of specialty. And right now, you know, we've, we've always been good at creating a couple of emotions, like frustration, like, oh, this game is hard and it sucks. And like, oh, I feel really great. I blew up the big boss monster. But that's a very limited emotional palette. And so what his games are about is exploring a wider range of expression than that, you know? The games are about, here's what it's like to take my young son on a walk in the forest, or here's how it feels to be in my marriage right now. And um, I think that's really a very interesting direction, and I think as games mature, we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, at the same time, it's been kind of controversial because a lot of people don't get them. They're like, oh, these games aren't that fun or, oh, they're pretentious art games, or if you go look on forums, you'll see all sorts of responses to that. But I thought that it was, um, I was glad to have those this year because they're very unique. Where do you see the future of games going in terms of different genres, different applications, anything else? You know, that... it's really hard to say. Um, you know, in the short term, I think that we have a pretty good picture, like everybody does. It's going to be a lot like today, but with some minor changes. Um, the, some of the well, more interesting just... questions... Go ahead. Um, so, well, so, well, so one of the more interesting questions on the console side is the whole PS3 and Xbox 360 versus the Wii, right? Like, 
for years we had this this thing about how production values were going up and up and up, right? And then Nintendo this time just said, well, actually, we're going to make hardware that's not that much more powerful than the previous time, which implies that production values aren't going to go that much either. And we're going to actually make a new controller and try to make the gameplay different. And that has so far been extremely successful for them, right? And so... What is that going to mean in terms of future game development, right? Are, are people going to finally realize, like, wow, this playability and fun thing really is pretty important, or in the next generation are we going to be back to a production value arms race? It's an interesting question. Um, I actually don't know how much more of an arms race there can be in terms of graphics, because, geez, we're rendering stuff that's pretty high-res, complicated shaders already. We've also seen that trend online, you know, with the emergence of casual games. So is this something that's going to be things that indie game developers need to look at, which is not necessarily production values, but something that's simple but different? You mean you mean in terms of casual games production values rising year after year? Oh, well, or... in terms of, say, AAA games and then casual games coming in, games like, you know, Snood or games like uh, PopCaps games like Bejeweled and Zuma, which just cater to a totally different demographic and actually um, help to uh, pretty much def- redefine part of an industry. Yeah, um, I think that, that that's been an interesting thing. Um, I'm not sure what lessons to derive from it, right? For a couple of years it looked like, oh, you know, these casual games aren't very uh, expensive to make and there's a big market for them. So, hey, indies can totally jump in there and play. And that's been kind of true. But again, it's, it's becoming a little bit less true every year. Not as badly as the AAA space. But the fact is, um, you know, portals kind of prefer working with bigger companies um, in terms of the deals they give. And they want pretty high production values now. You know, PopCap's last, well, three of their most recent games, I don't remember exactly what their recent games were, but um, were Bejeweled 2 and Bookworm Adventures and uh, Peggle. And all of those had pretty high budgets, like... Five hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars per game, um, which you know a lot of indies would look at that and say like, "Wow, we can't spend that much." Um, so you have the same question over again about whether production values are going to dominate or whether somehow people will find new gameplay. So the the issue though, um. And the issue that I have with that viewpoint. So that's been the classical way that everybody thinks or. Maybe not everybody, but most people I know. Sure. The way that I think is is production values or gameplay, right? Yeah. And the issue the issue that I have with that, um, doing the experimental gameplay workshop year after year, it's become pretty apparent to me that the more you know weird and wacky things that people do, the harder it does, the harder it will become to find new things that nobody's done, right? The harder it'll be to find gameplay that you've never seen in a game before. Um, so then, if you're going to talk about gameplay trumping production values, then you're really talking about taking some existing gameplay and polishing it a lot, which is really kind of its own production value in a way. It's just not effort pumped into graphics. It's effort pumped into gameplay, but you're still spending a lot of money on that. Um, And actually, PopCap's been doing both, right? They they haven't just been spending their budgets on graphics. They spend a long time iterating on their design. Um, So... um, for me, that's one reason why uh, games like Rod Humble's games are interesting, is that they're kind of going along a third dimension, right? It's not just production values versus gameplay, but it's also just expression. Like, what is the artist saying through this game to the player, right? And that that is a direction uh, that's kind of a lot more democratic, right? Everybody can say something, Right? Everybody has a perspective and a viewpoint and feelings that are different from everybody else. And so somebody who doesn't have a lot of money to spend on game development but has their own, their own thing that they w- want to say, the way that they want to uh, communicate with you or appeal to you, they can bring that into the space. And it'll be something that you've never seen before just because it's, it's from them and it's not from someone else. And that, I think, is the best hope for future indies right there is to develop this expressive um, avenue of game design 
and start to populate that. And th we've seen a few games uh, to do that already. So like Jonathan Mack's game, Everyday Shooter, which won a couple of prizes at the IGF this year, uh, is very much like that. It's, it's an expression. It's what he wanted the game to be. And he cares a lot about like every little piece of the way that game is. And um, it's not trying to be an artistic statement in the same way that like Rod Humble's games are, but um, it's definitely art, you know, in its own way, and and um, it's different from other games that you've seen. Uh, even though a lot of the gameplay elements are similar, like you play level one of Everyday Shooter, and you're like, oh, that's just like every extent, you know. Yeah. You play another part, and it's like a, that's a lot like Warning Forever right there, or whatever. There's a, there's a bunch of influences in there, and um, but. Um, but the, it coheres like as a whole, as as a work that you can appreciate, and um, I think that's an important thing for people to look at in the future. Speaking of expression, um, you know, there's. Have you also given consideration to toys? You know, The Sims is considered, or Will Wright considers The Sims a toys, and do you see in the future, at least for targeting mainstream, that so-called games will have to become expressional toys? toys that allow people to express themselves? You know, I, I think it's possible. Um, the personal problem with I have that I have with that is that none of those games ever really appealed to me. Like, you know, I, I played The Sims for like 20 minutes, and then I was like, okay, I get it, and I moved on. Um, because, you know, it just wasn't for me. And um, as, a, as a designer myself, um, I don't feel like I can take an approach that's about targeting the mainstream and then making a design for that and going and doing it. I think that that's yeah. something that's the job of the mainstream industry, right? So um, I think it's possible that the general public would like more toy-oriented things, but those aren't the things that I'm compelled to work on. There's this talk about pretty much the future of gaming being very social. And so do you see then a trend where most players are going to be doing social social type gaming, MMO type gaming, as compared to, say, single player gaming? Well, I, you know, I think games is going to branch out in several directions. There are some aspects of games that are already very social, like MMOs or party games on your home console, and I think that'll still be there, but um, there are going to be several other avenues. I think we'll have single player games forever. Um, you know, like a, a game, you know, if you want to go back and, and talk about uh, you know, Rod Humble's games, those are a communication, uh, but it's kind of a one-on-one -on -one communication. Like, you could somehow put other players in that type of game, uh, but I'm not necessarily sure that it would make it a stronger statement, maybe for some specific. Maybe if you want to make a statement about people interacting with each other, you could do that. But I think that um, there's just a lot of room for that to be its own genre. Like, here, here is me, as the game designer, communicating to you, the player, and there's nobody else involved. So um, one of the reasons why it's so great to be around right now during the formation of, or the maturation of games as a medium, is that there's just a lot of stuff to see. There's a lot of different directions it can go and then it will go. And who really knows? You know, I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be some other direction that we haven't even thought about yet that's going to be huge 10 years from now. Um, and that's, that's exciting to think about. But I'm loathe to try and predict those things because I think the future is always a little more interesting than we give it credit for. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on alternate reality gaming? Um, you know, I haven't actually participated in any. Like, I sort of watched the, uh, the Isle of Bees thing happen and I'd go visit the website once in a while, but I didn't actively try to decode the clues. Um, Again, because it's kind of not the kind of game that really strikes me uh, where I really want to play. Um, but at the same time, hey, a lot of people like those, and that's great. And I hope they continue to be made and that they continue to get better. What are the types of games that inspire you, or games that you do like to play? That's a really tough question. Um, it used to be, like originally, I liked the same kind of games as everyone else. Like when I was a kid, it's like, oh, if it's got like awesome explosions and you run around like blowing stuff up and or whatever, like that's really great. Um, you know, and at, at some point you play enough games that if you play a new one that is a lot like the ones that you played, you're not really that interested in any, anymore because you're like, hey, 
I've played this game 15 times with different graphics. Um, so at that point, I sort of decided that, like, yeah, the kind of games that I want to uh, that I want to play are do wacky stuff that nobody's ever seen before, that give me a new experience that I've never had before. And I think I think that I still have that part of me, like I want to see that. But I also just um, I want to see and play games that are thoughtful, uh, both on the author's part, like the author was very thoughtful about the way they put things together, um, but also in terms of the way that I respond to it and think about what's in the game. You know, I want to um, I want to have a game kind of interact with me on an intellectual level, whatever that means, and and that can mean a lot of different things. What would you say are your favorite indie games then? Mm, well, um, if we go by hours played, then my favorite indie game ever would have had to be Counter-Strike before Valve bought it, um, because I played that forever, and like, you know, a lot of people would think like, oh, after all he said about new experiences and blah blah blah, it's just a generic like, you know, shooter with like terrorists and stuff, like what are you talking about? But it's actually, it was very different from other games when it came out, and it provided a play experience that was uh, compelling, and um, and very like thoughtful and engaging again because you're doing all this tactical planning at the same time that that you're executing things and and it was really nice. Um, in terms of more modern uh, games, um, I, I think Everyday Shooter um, was my favorite game of this past IGF. Um, of course, you say that and like everybody else in the IGF was like, "Well, what about my game?" And the truth is, I haven't I haven't played all of them, so I, I can't really say for sure. Um, I actually, um, I like Dwarf Fortress a lot, um, even though, uh, you know, I, I basically only played it for about 20 hours, which is, which is brief for Dwarf Fortress. That's one of those games that's made to be played for a very long time. But I really liked it, um, just because it was a very different experience, and it, it was modeling a world in a very rich way that sort of used to be a dream of a long time ago. A lot of people thought about, like, oh, I'm going to make these worlds that are very intricate and about simulating a lot of stuff. But somehow people stopped doing that. And, uh, you know, Dwarf Fortress is there doing it, and they're doing a great job. Um, you know, with no graphics, right, it's all being drawn in ASCII, which is kind of cool and, and I guess, retro for people who are into that. Um, and then I, I actually really like Gamma Brothers, um, which is a, you know, a little... Uh, shooter, I think it's in Flash, or something like that, yeah. and um, yeah, and I really like that game because um, not because of the core game design, right, it was just about move and shoot but the way that they put it together, um, it just felt different from other games that I'd played you know, it was this journey, and the way the little enemies come in and out and situations happen just felt epic and interesting to me in a way that other games had not so um, that was really nice. And the fact that you could play it, you know, it was kind of hard, right? Um, so I probably played it for a few hours before I won. But it's still a pretty short play experience. Like, you can sit down. You don't need to learn very much. You get what the game has to show you in a few hours, and then you're done, and you've completed it, you know, which is a lot like going to see a movie or something, right? If, if you go see a Hollywood yeah. movie, it's not a 40- or 60-hour commitment. Um, and hopefully you get, if you want to see a good movie, you got something out of it that was like worthwhile. And I think that games should be more that way. Where do you see the future of your game design going? You know, it's hard to say. Um, my next project actually has something in common with Braid that I didn't realize. And I'm wondering if maybe this is going to be kind of one of my design uh, habits that runs through a lot of games, but it's also about um, taking some simple things and varying them from level to level, situation to situation. So in Braid, it was, um, you know, how time behaves, and in this new game, it's just something a little bit simpler, like what you're trying to do, like what's your goal, and um, starting to vary that from level to level, and just naturally seeing what the consequences are. Like, hey, if you're trying to do A, and then B is in the environment, that makes this other thing really hard, and isn't that kind of interesting. And the game is actually sort of, again, a dialogue with the player about going from situation to situation and saying, hey, isn't this interesting? Isn't this other thing interesting, too? And um, 
which is a lot how the wave rate is. So um, maybe that will be uh, one of my main design um, avenues. But then again, I think if I do that for too many games, it'll get kind of boring. So I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Like I have, you know, every time I have an idea for a game, I type it up in a little file. And I think there's about 37 ideas in there right now, most of which I think are good enough to do. And I really have no idea if there's any kind of common link between them. They're just all things that I was really motivated about that idea at the time when I typed it up and thought that it would be cool. Okay. While you're developing this game, are you prototyping then some of those ideas that you have in that file? Um, I'm up in the air about that, actually. because uh, So right now I'm not, simply because this game is a little bit early on for that. Like, I'm still in the initial push. I've only been working on it for a couple months. Um, so uh, it's a very high productivity time, like high density of ideas time, and so the new ideas are all going into that game. Um, when, you know, maybe in a few months I'll be at a good time to take a break, and um, I have one or two ideas for what I want to do for the game after that, and the problem that I'm having is the one that I really would like to do, I'm not sure is actually prototypable. Um, which was something I wanted to do, talk about at my talk this year, but didn't have time. Uh, which is just some game designs are a lot more conducive to being prototyped than other ones are. And then what do you do? Do you just restrict yourself to the ones that you can prototype? Or do you sometimes say, I know it's a good practice to prototype and stuff, but damn it, I really want to make this other game, and it's going to require this investment of like three months before I even know if it's going to work. Um, so I don't know. I, I have yet to make that decision about whether I want to do this game or do something else. Um, for the third game. Okay, and what would you say then is um, the change in your development process since you first started? So when you first started in 1996, how has your game design and game development process changed up to its current form? Yeah, well back then we didn't have that much of a process. It was like, oh, we're going to make this game with tanks in it and it's going to be awesome. Like, that was it. And, uh, and then we started making it because you know, and actually, it's not that different now. Um, you know, I get some idea for something I want to make, and I'm like, oh, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to probably prototype it. Um, I then make a more informed decision on that, and uh, I do regularly circulate things to friends to get comments on them now, which I didn't do back then, uh, which was not really possible back then. But I also, um, I aim a lot more for simplicity now and ask myself, you know, what is the game that will be simplest both to play and to make that still gets across everything that I want to be the subject of this game, right? So in Braid, it's like time manipulation. And in this new game, it's just playing around with your goals. Um, the, because I think the more complicated a game is, and the more elements it has that aren't part of that central idea, the more obscured the central idea becomes, right? And if you want the game yeah. to be really strong and like really hit the player, you want it to be focused. And so, um, you know, Braid, for example, I said, like, hey, there aren't going to be very many controls, right? So it's just walking in four directions, and then the jump button, and then there's a rewind button. Uh, and that's it. Um, in this new game, there's only the mouse. Like, you just move the mouse. You don't even click the button ever. And, um, like, that's a really interesting thing to me, because as a designer, you can really mine, like, what can I do without falling back on this age-old design crutch of, like, adding an extra control that, like, lets you shoot weapon B or, like, shields or, you know, whatever people do. Um, if I don't give in to the temptation to do easy things like that, what can I come up with that's still strong, you know, in the avenue of what I'm pursuing with this game and that'll be really fun and, and interesting and effective? The other thing I was going to ask is, do you have any other questions that you usually ask in your game design process that you've verbalized or that you have in mind? Because you mentioned the simplicity thing, which I think was really interesting and useful for other game developers. I was wondering if there was anything else you had. No, you know, it's it's mainly an individualized thing. It's like, what what do I feel is really important? And that's just different for everybody, and it's hard to it's hard to pin that down, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what, in, what, what interests you as a person? Like, you probably have a lot of interests. It's the same with me, so... Okay. Uh, do you have any last words for independent game developers out there? That sounds really dramatic. Do you have any <laughs> last words? Um, 
I don't know. You know, just just keep doing what you're doing, and because uh, it's it's great to have indie developers out there. We need, you know, we need more. Actually, we need a stronger indie community. Um, and I think, um, you know, I would like it if more indie developers um, were doing what they w were being indies because they want to be indies and not because they can't be mainstream, right? Like I was alluding to at the beginning of our uh, interview, there are a lot of indie developers who are just kind of indies because they don't have that much money to spend hiring people or or building a game with big production values. And that's good. Like I think that um, I think that we need that. Um, those people kind of can chase after the mainstream industry and sort of keep them working hard and keep them honest because otherwise they'll lose their market to these small guys. But at the yeah. same time, the thing that really interests me is what can indies do because they're not mainstream? Like, what risks can they take? What kind of subject matter can they put in their games that a corporation would never, you know, give the pass to, right? What, um, how personal can they be? When, when you have a game that's developed by 100 people, it's hard to have a really personal uh, expression survive that development process, whereas indies can do that, right? And I would like you know, indies out there to focus on these powers that they have and uh, and use them to make really compelling games. Great. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're talking with Jonathan Blow, uh, creator of Braid. Thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye.